Hi, this is Anna. Anna, this is Michael. Yeah, we're on there. He's recording the sound of it, not Hi. the camera. This is Nae. <laughs> Hi, Anna. Hi, Nae. Have you heard podcasts where they record and then they play it for other people and other people can listen? Ew. And in this case, it's about mom's book and work. But Michael gets to do podcasts with all sorts of people working on things all around the world. Yeah. You guys okay? Need anything? No. Okay. The nap isn't working out, huh? <laughs> okay. We'll try again after this. I hope you um, feel better. <laughs> oh, they're my main yeah. kuleana. This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Mehana Blake Vaughn, assistant professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management in the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. Mehana is an environmental social scientist whose work focuses on indigenous and community-based natural resource management. I spoke with Mehana about her book, Kaiolu, Gathering Tides. In this book, Mehana describes the relationships between Hawaiian people and their land and water. Throughout the book, Mehana describes how Hawaiians view nature as a partner rather than just as a resource. The book is a guide to important Hawaiian concepts such as kuleana, which embodies the idea that access to the environment is partnered with obligations to it and to one's community. We talked about this concept and many other related terms that in my mind now form a network of understanding for a worldview that is quite different from the bureaucratized, westernized, much more dominant position. During our discussion, we also talked about the land dispossession that Hawaiians have faced and how some Hawaiian communities have been trying to reassert their environmental traditions within the context of the westernized view represented in Hawaiian state bureaucracy. Mehana also read several of her wonderful poems and we were visited a few times by her kids, who you heard at the beginning of this episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mehana Blake Vaughn. Okay, so Mehana, can we can we start with, as I kind of warned you, this origin story question of kind of how we got to where we are. And I'm gonna put it, because we're gonna be focusing so much on this book that I've so thoroughly enjoyed reading, I'll frame it in the context of that book. Can you talk to me about your personal and professional experiences that led you to want to write a book like this that we're gonna spend most of the interview talking about? What led you to go to Stanford and write the dissertation that I may be projecting feels like was a step towards this, but I'd love to hear that as well. What were the kind of formative and later experiences that led you down this path? Sure. Um, so I was a young person who liked to listen to stories um, and liked to listen to elders. I think foundational to that was my relationship with my own grandmother, um, Amelia Anna Kaopua Bailey, uh, who's a laymaker. And so some of my early memories are sitting next to her at her lay table, hearing the hum of the refrigerator that she kept her flowers in and watching um, her craft lay um, and, you know, being told to snip off some of that or cut these up into pieces and hand them to her. And 
um, just watching and then listening to her talk and also sometimes being silent, but just, you know, feeling very complete in her presence and that there was a lot of learning to be done from watching and from listening, um, even if I wasn't yet making the lay myself. Um, I think of, and then my family moved um, when I was three and a half from Oahu um, to the north shore of the island of Kauai. And we live where two um, traditional moku, Ko'olau and Halele'a, come together. Um, and so being raised here as a young person that knew that um, my family wasn't from here originally or ancestrally, as so many of the families around us who'd been here for generations and generations, um, but also at the same time very strongly feeling it was my home, the only home I've ever known. I still live here with my children. My husband and I have three children. Um, and I'm an educator, and I was, um, I was trained as a middle school teacher. Um, but in many years of my early professional life and coming home from college and coming home, I was doing educational programs here um, that have connected me to other community members and other families and their elders. I was part of a community um, farming project that makes our traditional foods, Hawaiian um, poi, every week on Thursdays, gathering to make poi and sitting with elders there and listening to their stories of where they were when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Um, how the taste of the taro has changed and the varieties, um, how they've seen fish change, the responsibilities that come with fishing, I'm just loving those stories. So I think the book came out of a sense of responsibility to share and tell them, um, particularly in a community that's changed so much over my lifetime here. And I think perhaps because I was leaving for college, for school, coming home, I've seen those changes in a very profound way, and also because I'm both an insider and an outsider to this place. Um, so the stories have felt like they were entrusted to me and important to share. Um, and in the book, I try to share them in the form of a lay, as was the practice of my grandfather, my grandmother, and our ohana. And so did I have it right that when you went to Stanford for your PhD, that was a step in this direction to kind of formalize some of these experiences and express them in your professional written work? Absolutely. I might already been a teacher for years um, at the middle school level and in charter schools. And I was working at this place on our island I talked about, Waipa, um, where the poi making was and running educational programs. And um, a faculty member from Stanford had come and talked about their program. And I always did have a strong sense that I had an obligation um, growing up in a small rural community where many people didn't go to college um, to go as far in my education as I could. Um, and I was collecting these stories. I'd been collecting them then for almost a decade, and it felt like they needed to become a book. Um, I love to write. I have a mom who's a poet and grew up around writing, so I felt that mm. was a way I could contribute. Um, and then from what I knew, that's what you did in PhD programs, write books. <laughs> so I decided to apply to the one that was recommended to me um, and was really lucky to be granted a scholarship and um, and then to go even, you know, when I was already 30 years old and thinking I was done with education and didn't need to leave our island once again, newly married, um, but left my husband with his support and the family support and went to pursue a PhD in environmental studies in Stanford. I thought to write the book. <laughs> you thought to write the book. I thought to write the book. It was an interdisciplinary program in environmental studies. 
um, the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources and um, a wonderful program and required us all really to be very interdisciplinary to study economics, engineering, policy, um, with an emphasis on those are the sorts of skills, ecology, um, that you need to address environmental problems in the world. And I knew that and I was excited about the program for that reason. Um, but I, I didn't anticipate that I'd have so much time in entry-level classes, getting my calculus skills and my econ skills up to par, um, but also that, that there's really an emphasis in graduate school in the sciences on um, producing articles. Um, and so I was able to, my, my thesis work, which is on the Haena community effort to care for the Haena fishery, became a part of the book. Um, but I didn't get to write all of the book. I didn't get to write in book form in that program. That said, there was immense support among my advisors and those there um, and my committee to help me think about how to do that as a next step. Great. And that's one of the things I'd like to ask you about is the these community efforts. It's it's Haena. I'm, I'm already self-conscious about how I'm going to mispronounce these words. Last time we talked before this interview, we talked about how central language is. And it, it really felt like reading this book, you, you just kind of experienced this network of Hawaiian words that all kind of interrelate to each other. And I feel like I'm kind of like traversing this web of different ideas. Um, and so can we start actually with, I mean, the, the title of the book. Can you tell me how you pronounce this word that's on, on the cover that I understand means community in Hawaiian? Sure. Um, this book is called Kaiaulu. Um, Kaiaulu. Gathering Tides. My daughter ran and, ran, ran and found a copy um, in the house. Um, but Kaiaulu, Gathering Tides. Um, Kaiaulu means community. Um, it's the word for community. It, it kind of comes from um, a description of the ocean that surrounds us, being surrounded by community, by ocean, as we are in Hawaii, and as community surrounds us in our lives and makes us who we are and shores us up. Um, it's also the wind of the Waianae coast of the island of Oahu, which is not where I'm from, not somewhere I've lived. But um, my first research as an undergraduate was into an effort to Hawaiianize um, and wrap in community the education system and the local public high school of that major, um, majority Hawaiian, Native Hawaiian community. Um, and so I learned a lot as I was training as a teacher from being there and being outdoors with those students um, in this Hawaiian studies program. And I wanted to honor that place and the teaching of the elders and the community members there and the teachers there. Um, so I named it for community and also for the wind of one of the first communities I got to work with. Mm, okay. So the the concept that actually was my entry point into the book was was reading a was through an article in the International Journal of the Commons in which Hawaii is one of several case studies about different ways of thinking about rights to nature and the concept that was central there that really impacted me a lot was kuleana mm -hmm. which you know you're going to hear me kind of struggle here because I, I, I take seriously this idea that you present at the beginning of the book that a lot of these concepts don't have literal translations into English. So, but for me, what felt so powerful was that we don't have a literal, we don't, there's not one word in English, it seems that there is for this idea of kuleana. My understanding is that it's both about talking about rights, but inseparable from responsibilities 
that we owe to the community, that we owe to nature. And in my mind, it's representing, because it's one word, this inseparability of those two ideas that in the more dominant perspective on rights that say I was taught in my policy, in my graduate education, which was a kind of fairly standard policy degree, you learn about environmental rights, rights to nature, and there's no accompanying idea of responsibilities at all. So that's kind of how I experienced it as this, oh, there's, we, we, we need to talk about the conjoining of, of rights and responsibilities. And I find it interesting that you've actually already mentioned, you know, the word you've mentioned your own feelings of responsibility, your own feelings of obligation. So it feels like we're already talking about some, we're in that space a little bit already. Could you talk to me about how this word kuleana represents um, a perspective both I understand about how humans engage with the environment, but at the same time, I think also with each other? I can. Um, I think I might first read you a poem, if that's okay, because this the book is also called Gathering Tides, because a lot of the people I was working with and talking to um, were fishing people and fishing families, and they were talking about the kuleana that come with being a fishing person, um, that there's many levels of both responsibility and privileges that come with that. Um, one of that is knowing the tides, which tides to catch which fish, carrying this knowledge across generations, right? Um, another thing is feeding others, right? Taking care of your tools, um, taking care of your fishing spots, paying attention to ecological changes. Um, in many places, they actually plant the reef and cultivate the reef with seaweed, which is the base of the food chain. So Kuleana is, is very multifaceted. It has many, many aspects to it. And in this book, each chapter is a form of Kuleana in relation to being a person of a place and a, a, play, a person that is sustained and your family is sustained from that place. Um, not just getting your food, but but all other forms of nourishment um, that help you, you know, health, mental health, ecological uh, uh, education, all of those things really stemming from place, your relationship to it, and your responsibility to care for it. One of the first elders I worked with who was from Wa'anae, Anakala Erika Anana, he said, Kuleana is that which is in your care. And he said it was, you know, it's used to refer to lands in Hawaii that families care for. Um, and it has many legal connotations. But essentially, he said that's that's because what you care for, whether it be land or a talent or um, knowledge passed in your family, the songs that are sung in your family, what is yours to care for and how you care for it and how you make it productive and how you share it and allow it to feed others helps us know who you are and helps us know who we can what we can entrust you with, um, which in turn teaches us as a community how to look at you and how to rely on you. And, um, and so it's, it's much more than rights and responsibilities, but it's also the balance of those things and how we carry those forth in our lives and hand them on across generations. Mm. So maybe I will read this poem because it's me grappling with my own kuleana, grappling with going back to graduate school, um, it became the base of this book, even though it's not in the book. <laughs> and it just gives you an example of some of the many kinds of kuleana that come with, say, just being a throw net fisherman. Is that okay? That'd be wonderful. Thank you. It's called Hole Upena, throw net fishing, a graduate program. 
And every verse is one of the requirements of the grad degree, um, the PhD program I went to, um, and one of the steps of throw net fishing. Hole upena, throw net fishing, a graduate program. Kupuna, nana ike kumu, know who you are and where you come from. This upena, this net, took one kupuna, one elder, Uncle Charlie Pereira, three weeks to make, all day, working on his porch in Anahola, overlooking the red dirt, former pineapple field, arsenic hard pan, sloping to windblown February sea, rumbling horizon, an occasional humpback leaping from the white caps. This upenna, this net, is one of a hundred sprung from his calloused fingers, eight bamboo needles, suji line, and a cardboard spacer cut from the paper towel roll to keep the rows even, lined up, mayao, neat, just the way the kupuna, the elders, like it. Each maka, each eye connected to one before, he to his wife's father who taught him, her father to the kupuna who taught him, and back and back and on back to the piko, the source. Two, naponohana, tools and approaches for interdisciplinary work. Always start from the piko, the source. Hold it pa'a fast. Lift the folds to your height. Now mahele, divide. One section on your left shoulder, elbow cocked to hold it pa'a. One measured out over your right thigh, heel up to hold it pa'a. The last section in your left hand, no drop it, pa'a. Now pick up the net on your thigh in your right hand. Get them, pa'a, held fast. Each section has a function. Your left shoulder will open the net left. Left hand will lift the net out ahead. Right hand will open the net right, but no let go the last finger. It holds the net back. You get them, pa'a. Three, kauli ili'i kaloa me kalaula. Gain facility in four breath areas. When you let go your net, twist to wind up, then really let her go. Extend your arms like dancing hula, fluid, flow, nothing tight, no hold back. Fling the net round, wide, open, cover as much area as possible, soaring, suspended over the ilikai, the surface of the sea. Four, elave ikamalea aku ono ono, achieve mastery in two depth areas. When she hit the ocean, the leads drop fast, hitting bottom, then bouncing pulling the bag in on itself, wrapping under, still round, but closer, tightening when she lands so the ia, the fish, no can pakeleaku, escape, slip out underneath. Makahana kaike, conduct innovative research. When you pull your net in, always come from the pico, the source, hold that pa'a fast, then huki, hand over hand. She come tighter, closing in on the ia, the fish. The little fish, they'll slip through the maka, the eyes, swim away to grow more. The big ones, the more they wriggle, the more they're caught. Pa'a. So when you lift your net from the water, it is full, heavy, and dancing, shaking silver, threshing sunlight. Six, hanayaku hanai mai, that makes a difference. Main thing, no waste, take your time. Walk your net to the muliwai, the river mouth. Gently remove each ia, each fish, one flapping fin at a time. Careful, you don't get cut. Fill your backpack, lava, enough. Don't take more than you need and always give back. First fish, not for you. To mahalo, give thanks. The kupuna now, the elders, never ask them if they like fish. That's rude. 
Like you're giving, but you don't want to give. You just give. Don't ask them how much. Just let them take as much as they like. If they're shy to take, you give plenty, then give more. The more you give, the more there is. Vai vai. Abundance. How much can you share? How many can you feed? Hanai miki aloha. Feed with aloha. And lastly, seven. Mahalo malama. Show gratitude and respect by taking care. This upena, this net, she going to feed you. You come ma'a, you get used to her. No need to worry about anything. Me, almost every day, I go holo holo, cruising around with my upena, my net. Hurricane come, barges stop. Foodland, Walmart, cost you less clothes. My life, no change. Every day, I go holo holo with my upena. Me, no pilikia, no troubles. But you have to malama. You have to take care of her. You don't take care of her, she cannot take care of you. Hang her from the pico, the center, and fold her like this so she don't fray. If you keep her in your ka'a, your car, you're ready. Whenever get ia, whenever there's fish, but keep her out of the sun in a soft pillowcase. Call her by her name. Rinse the salt. Pick out every leaf, twig, bit of seaweed, limu, but don't just let her sit. Use them. Or you and she going to forget. You got to practice. The only way to know you know something is to do it. It is dusk when Uncle Charlie finishes the upenna, the net, clouds dropping to touch Kalalea Mountain, taking on the colors of the disappearing sun as he knots the last maka into place, connected to the one before it, then the one before that, row after row, back to the pico, the center, hanging from the nail, the upenna stretching full height, taller than him. Uncle Charlie wonders about his next net, larger still, more rows. Who will he teach? The next maka, the next eye, to malama, to take care, and ho'omau, to continue. With aloha and mahalo to Uncle Jeff Chandler, Uncle Chansi Pa and Chansi Pa Jr., Uncle Charlie Pereira, Auntie Loke Pereira, Uncle Val Ako, Auntie Vai Hashimoto Goto, Anakala Eri Ka'anana, Walter Paulo, Nancy Pi'ilani, Amelia Bailey, and the many kupuna and others who have taken the time to teach and to share. August 2006. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. It's, it's interesting. As you were talking, I was, um, I'm used to, as, as someone's talking to me on this, to be always in a very analytical space and thinking about what the next question I want to ask is and trying to, again, be very analytical and say, okay, this chunk goes over here. How do we make sense of things? And mm -hmm. I had to kind of like let go of that a little bit and say, okay, I need to just let this affect me and listen to the language and the tone as a poem and not something that I need to worry so much about splicing and dicing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It leaves me without a question immediately to ask you next. That's fine. Um, I, I just wanted your readers to have a sense of where the stories come from, to feel the practices, one of the practices that the stories are rooted in and some of the voices of the people that the stories are rooted in and, and to have an illustration of kuleana because um, mm -hmm. it is a word and, and yeah, we analyze it very different ways, but you know, how you care for and perpetuate and help others with that which is yours to care for. 
Um, and the book is organized around different forms of kuleana that the people of our coast have to this place. So there's a chapter about um, about about how the things in our environment are part of our family and that familial connection and how there's no division between people um, and their natural world. And so the first kulean is relationship and relating. Um, and then the second one is about tending and about very concrete practices to foster abundance in a place, whether you're um, building rock shelters that are habitat for fish so that when there's high surf, there's always fish in there and you just put your net over over the shelter you've created and they're right there um, rather than looking for them and um, and about respecting other people's boundaries and ice boxes and where they take care of. There's a chapter about sharing because sharing is a huge thing here and we have a whole informal economy where people give the fruits of their labor and the gifts that they have and that um, share that feeds others. Um, and there's also a chapter about people who are appointed to sort of oversee that kind of harvest and the collective work and ensure abundance for all. Um, and then the last two chapters, one is about land loss because kuleana is also a way to referring to land and it's getting harder for people, these families to stay in our communities um, and what the impact is when you have people who carry so much kuleana and are caretakers of place and community when they have to leave. Um, and then the last chapter is about how communities in Hawaii, particularly one fishing community here, are working to, um, to to let their traditional practices and ways of caring and tending their fishery um, become state law and become things that everyone follows wherever they're from when they come to that place and the dynamics and challenges of that. Um, so, yeah, it's just many forms of kuleana that we hope sharing them from our place in our community will help others think about their kuleana to the places that, that they're from. Mm. Great. I mean, again, thank you. And I'd like to spend essentially the remainder of the episode talking to you about those topics. There's a, there's a question that occurs to me to want to ask you. So when you hear me say, you know, is kuleana about, does it relate to property rights, et cetera? Mm -hmm. There's a critique of even that question that occurs to me, and it's based in part on a book I read called, I think it's The Weirdest People in the World. So weird is this um, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. It's this classification of a certain type of culture and, and, and intellectualization and it's it's the word has been popularized because of a critique of a lot of experimental work done in psychology on on college students and the critique is look we can't necessarily generalize from weird folks to lots of other cultures even though and the reason we're doing these experiments is because those are the folks that are most available to weird researchers so i'm interested in your take and, and one of the the characterizations that Joe Henrik has of this kind of weird mentality is it is very analytical and it's trying to discretize and put things into different categories. And so I'm just curious when you hear me ask, you know, is Kuleana about, does it relate to property rights? Does that kind of feel like this imposition of a weird perspective on something that is ultimately about a lot more than that? Well, I think property is a lot more about a lot more than that. Mm. Okay. 
So in our context in Hawaii, this older idea of kuleana is that what you're taking care of, um, which mm-hmm. also included land. And sorry, speaking of kuleana, are my children too loud? They're laughing in the back. It is what I can hear them, but it's great. I'm happy we're having this conversation. If we have it with children having fun in the back, then all the better for it. (laughs) All right. Um, So when when land property and title was formalized in Hawaii, because it never was right, you land was one of the most essential aspects of Kulean and how you cared for it. And if your family cared for land well, you could stay there in perpetuity. Um, no one owned it. The ali'i, the ruling class, didn't own it. Their job was to um, help it to be productive and to make sure that it was, you know, allotted and um, and and used and farmed in ways that were productive for all. Um, but with the onset of, you know, Western contact, uh, Captain Cook arrived in 1778, um, and the missionaries in the 1820s. And so, in 1850, uh, Kamehameha III led an effort to formalize property title in Hawaii because he could see that if property title was delineated and written down, that might be advantageous to his people and to helping to keep the land, to make the title something seen. Um, Make it legible. Make Mm -hmm. it legible, right. And at that point, kuleana was the word um, that our people chose to assign to the lands that were awarded to them in that formal sort of land awarding process, which were the lands they'd taken care of across generations. Um, the problem with that is that it kind of got narrowed because whereas an entire valley, if your family lived there and you had a taro patch in the valley and a home by the beach, your kuleana was all in the all in the valley, up and down. You could gather logs for um, firewood or for canoes from the forest and medicines you could you the 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 um, traditional valley boundaries and the ahupua'a boundaries of your community that bounded the community that could use that place um, actually extended out into the ocean um, as far as a mile or the edge of the fringing reef so your kuleana was much bigger than this postage stamp piece of property um, but And Carol Rose writes about this amazingly as one of her examples of how property is sort of a myth and a story, and we bound it in the way we want. Um, so kuleana started to be used to describe very small parcels of land, um, but without sort of translating that larger aspect that you had responsibility and access to the entire ecosystem and array of ecosystems that surrounded that property and that made your life there productive. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. We, I, I, I hate to mention this every single episode, but I'm a big fan of James Scott and his work, Seeing Like a State, and he talks a lot about the importance of legibility in governance and how so much of what happens in governance and, and the, it's a challenge of centralized governance is that they're all, the states are always trying to make their jurisdictions legible to them, often by simplifying down what is a complex reality. So I'm always thinking about Kind of, how, and, and it's just kind of one of these concepts that once you once you hear, you think about it all the time, right? How do I make myself legible to other people in my life? What parts of myself do I want them to be able to read, mm-hmm. etc.? So it's it's become like an all encompassing concept for me. So um, I'd love to pick up on another idea that you mentioned, which is the idea of kinship mm-hmm. as a really central part of this, and. The, another concept that, that is feel very closely related to this is reciprocity. They both feel very important as ways of expressing 
a strong connection with other people, but also with the environment. Mm -hmm. So could you talk to me a bit more about where you feel that comes from and how those concepts are either independently important or maybe how they also relate to each other. The idea of, of not of a relationship, not being just one direction, but it's also about my relationship with you. So for Hawaiians, it's rooted, kinship is the rooted in the idea that we're kind of the youngest siblings of this rich genealogy that comes before us. And one of the first things born is the coral polyp. Um, and if you think about our islands, they rest upon coral. Um, and then bit by bit, one at a time, um, there's our creation chant has, oh gosh, I forget how many parts it has, but um, chapter after chapter, different things are born. Um, each thing born in the mountains has a relative in the ocean. So we have that duality. And we as people, we don't show up until about chapter 14 out of 20 some. So we're, you know, we're, we're young. We're the last of it, but we're related um, to all of it. Um, and we have hmm. extra sort of responsibility to care, be caretakers of it. And we have extra impacts. And I think for the families in my book, this manifests in really, really practical, concrete ways um, that your place and the place you live in and are descended from constitutes you as a family. And one of my women I work with in an interview, she said, this is where we know how to be a family. This is the place that makes us a family. This is how hmm. we know where we know how to be us. And in that place, they're caretakers. They're one of the families that kicks trucks off the beach when people are driving on the beach or young people are joyriding in their trucks. And, you know, the gasoline of the trucks affects the crustaceans in the sand, which affects the fishery, which affects and, you know, people aren't always going through that whole thought process when they're exercising their caretaking. But, you know, it's all a part of it. Cleaning up trash on the beach. Um, you know, feeding people from the fishery itself, taking care of the waterways that feed into the ocean so that the water passes through safely and doesn't flood out a home or, um, and that that water, you know, is clean, planting ferns along the way so that it's filtered. All of these are things that are part of the mutuality um, and dualism of being of a place that you're descended from and that you're mm. really one and the same and that you constitute one another. Okay. And it seems like there's, as I said, a whole set of words that describe, and this is something we talked a little bit about in our conversation a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, there's a whole vocabulary here to describe the environment and, and humans that's very different from, say, again, say how I was taught to think about, okay, there's, there's natural resources and there's natural resource management and there's owners yeah. Right. And all these concepts that, again, if you're if you don't hear different words to describe a different perspective, you don't think about it. Right. It's like, well, yeah, sure. I study natural resource management because that's what I want to do. And so there's there's concepts that you talk about in the book and um, a few of them describe the environment. So there's one that seems very important. Aumakua, is that how you say it? It's this mm -hmm. idea of ancestors. And I think one of the examples you use in the book is that there's this idea of, of sharks as being Aumakua, mm -hmm. and that affects how people relate to them. There's this other concept, is it mea ola, which is mm -hmm. this idea of a sentient being and this idea of, of fish being sentient beings. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than, than talking about things as being natural resources. Mm -hmm. And there were even more terms that I picked up on to talk about 
the people, and there's 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 so many here. You talk about there's this concept of kahu, uh, mm-hmm. a keeper. There's the kiai, the, the the idea of a guardian, which seems very interesting and important to me. Mm-hmm. There's um, and you're seeing my self consciousness in trying to you're just, doing to great. Mention, I'm okay, great. <laughs> um, but there's 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 terms that build on this idea of aina, which is kind of the land, but also means that which feeds us, which is its own idea. Okay. There's you mentioned there's so there's the the noho papa, which is those who have lived in a place for a long time. But then there's the the hoa aina, friend of the land. There's kama aina, child of the land. This in, this immense vocabulary to describe uh, this in, this intrinsic internalized idea of, of of our relationship is not being instrumental, is not being what we're getting out of it solely. Yes. But yeah. and so I was just impressed by the richness of that vocabulary that in my own culture is barren of all of that. <laughs> and so that's I'm trying to at one point ask you a question that I'm trying to get to, but also just express this acknowledgement of how much this has affected me and how much it's really expanded my brain, to be honest, because it's again like not stuff that I've experienced a lot of before. Mm. And so, mm. and it also feels like all these concepts interrelate in some way. Mm-hmm. They do. And so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, when you think about, for example, the idea of kahu, a keeper, or kiai, a, a guardian, can you talk to me particularly about, about those roles and how they, because those seem like particular roles to me, particularly this idea of a guardian yeah. seems to be very important. Can you talk to me more about that and potentially this idea of a keeper as being a particular type of identity for someone to have? Surely. Well, for one thing, I'll say these are not unique to Hawaiian culture. Um, kia'i, the word kia'i is in Maori is talked about as kaitiaki or kaitiaki tanga, a, a guardian. There's, there's many forms of these words in other cultures. Most indigenous cultures have words like this, but not just indigenous cultures, right? And I think what's common about them is they, they define who we are in relationship to place. Um, and they mm-hmm. define who we are in some ways in relationship to kuleana. They give us kuleana. And some of these words you're born into, like kupa aina mm. refers to um, people who've been eating from a place for a long time. Literally, their bones are constituted of a place, right? Um, noho papa are families that you mentioned that have stayed in place for generations and they're foundational. Um, whereas... A hoa aina is a friend to the land. It's a companion to the land, one who's bound tightly to the land. You know, a hoa mm. aina can come from anywhere, but it's about how they behave toward the land and becoming an advocate for it. Um, there's other words for those who know the aina very deeply. Um, you talked about kahu as a caretaker, one who, um, one who is, yeah, who's the keeper of something, often for others. Interestingly, when the, the missionaries came, kahu was used to, became the word for a reverend, for a preacher. Um, so it's used a lot in not that context um, because it was adapted to that. But but essentially it means a keeper of people, of place. Um, and then kia'i is a word that's used more and more in Hawaii today, a guardian. Um, kia'i aina is a really important skill. It's a need. Um, kia'i aina, there were kia'i for different things, kia'i loko, who watched the gate of the fish pond and regulated the water flow and the balance of salt and fresh and watched the fish and knew when there was a flood and when to open the gate and knew how much fish could be taken at different times. 
Um, that also refers to someone who watches internally and cares for things that are internal to people. Um, Kia'i aina, though, is a word like that is used throughout Hawaii now in, in development battles and development issues. Those who were occupying on Mauna Kea set up camp on Mauna Kea for over a year in all weathers. Mauna Kea is the coldest spot in Hawaii, and we had our elders living up there for a year simply to sit in the road and block the construction of the 30-meter telescope. Um, and that battle, that 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 ongoing issue has been one that has spread the word kia'i um, across the world. Um, and mm. it's just one of many ongoing issues where, where kia'i and that role um, play a really, really important, um, yeah, another important responsibility that's enacted in these times. Okay. So why don't we pick up, pick up there actually, um, Mehana, and, and talk about what's happening now in these processes of dispossession that along with, the um, the efforts of the high in the community to work with the government are two things I want to make sure we get to. So, and we again we talked a little bit about this, and I, I guess the entryway w- would for me would be the comment that I made to you, I think via an email that a part of the issue here seems to be um, an ignorance or I can never think of the right word, but just. The fact that U.S. law doesn't recognize this idea of collective ownership and, and, and common property and the idea of a community um, owning something collectively, it's very individualistic um, and it actually makes it difficult for folks to work together to engage with the land collectively. And that seems to be a part of this larger story of land dispossession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is that something you feel like you act, you you have also seen? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think even more foundationally than that is the fact that we're dealing with U.S. law, um, and that mm-hmm. we, you know, we're an occupied nation and an occupied territory. There's no annexation treaty between us and the United States of America, and a, a long history of international recognition and um, treaties with twenty nations all around the world in the 1890s. Um, and then also even more recently, President Clinton's apology resolution on the anniversary of the overthrow of our queen in 1993. Um, so we remain an occupied nation and a, a, an occupied people. Um, and so it means that we are, yeah, living our culture, living our life ways, taking care of our lands, um, raising the future generations in this framework of American law that's been opposed upon us. And it does have many conflicts. And one of them is, yeah, that idea of property is something, land is something to be owned versus how we talked about it at the start of this interview. Um, more recently, it's manifesting um, incredibly much as we're, we're a very desirable real estate destination. Of course, um, Hawaii has been marketed for a long time as a tourism destination, but what's happened through the 80s and the 90s was sort of an emphasis, not just on coming to visit, but coming to buy. Um, and then not even, you know, coming and owning a vacation home for your own use, um, but now owning a vacation home as a highly lucrative way to invest your money and to earn money when you can rent it for $750 a night on the beach. So these families that I'm writing about, there's very, very few of them still living, particularly in coastal areas and beachfront areas of our island. Um, this got a lot more exacerbated during COVID when people were looking for sort of a safe place and they could work 
at a distance. Um, it, it intensified also during the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley as a lot of people invested here. So um, right now we probably have the most um, desirable real estate in the world. Some of the most expensive real estate in the world, our own hometown, uh, the median price of a home is $1.1 million. Um, and those are homes that are, I mean, literally crack houses, like crystal meth lab homes that have been foreclosed on are selling for that cost. And we do have a massive drug issues here, um, partly due to this dispossession and huge homelessness in our beach parks and houselessness. And so our people really, and especially since COVID in these last three years, are being displaced in whole new ways and moved off of our lands. Um, and it's a really, it's really a challenge. Um, not just because of the social issues and how do people, where do people live and how do they feed their children, um, those essential basics, but also how do you keep those relationships to place that are so essential, not just for that family, but for the whole community um, and for the character of the place and for the care of the place. Um, so that's been a challenge that we're facing in new ways. Um, well, uh, there's a lot to respond to there. I mean, yeah, I mean, COVID and then this idea, you know, the remote work, which we hear all about, and it's this, it is a nice thing for folks who can work remotely, but then it frees up this capital to kind of go wherever it wants and impose itself on all these other places and displace other people, right? And that's, that's the unavoidable cost of inequality to me is that it's going to enable some people to impose costs on other people because they have the capital to do it. Yeah. Another important idea here that, that you've mentioned a few times is the, the kind of specificity to place yeah. that you, this doesn't come for free. It's, it's about, um, well, you, at one point, and please correct me if, if I'm getting this wrong, but you kind of contrast Kuleana with this um, Malama Aina, which is this more general idea of um, a love for the land. And you say that, well, Kulean is, is, a, is a very specific relationship to place that you get. It's, it's, it's kind of, in my mind, it's like it's not something that you get for free. It takes time. It takes, it develops over time. Yeah. And so, and I feel like so many folks have gotten so far away from that because of this hypermobility. And so we're not rooted and yeah. we're going to the next job, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm obviously speaking, you know, a lot from my own cultural context. So I'd love to hear you talk more about this specificity and that it's when we talk about this kuleana and this relationship to the land, it's about a relationship to a particular place and your knowledge of that place and your experiences you have with that place. It's not something that's just sprouts out from anywhere. Yeah. And even an example of that is, um, you know, in the book, elders talk about if you went fishing just, you know, 20 minutes down the road, five miles away, people would say, what are you doing here? What's why aren't you taking care of your home reef? Have you exhausted all its fish? Like and if you would, you didn't you didn't fish all over. If you did go to some place where you didn't live, where you weren't from, it was always with a friend from that place. Right. So this idea of hosts of um, which is, you know, modern tourism doesn't have that at all. You go around with your your smartphone and it's all GPS and you're looking for the secret spot all on your own, right, without no guidance at all or totally. no reciprocity. Um, but I think, yes, that specificity of place is important. And so I think one of the things we're trying to do is is keep that and and invigorate that and um, and offer that as a teaching tool um, that 
you know, living in a place is not about ownership. It is about how are you giving back to it? How are you taking care of it? Um, we have an organization called Kipuka Kuleana. Um, and you know the second word, Kuleana. That first word, Kipuka, is when a lava flow comes and wipes out an entire landscape and completely um, destroys and changes and, and renews it. But there's these stands of trees. And a key to renewal is that often the lava separates and goes around a small area of forest. I mean, we're talking less than a quarter mile, even smaller in diameter. But those standing trees, that Kipuka, they're the seed bank for restoration across the whole landscape, for regeneration. And, you know, it feels so different hiking across this burning hot lava for hours, and then you get to this space of green. Uh, Kipuka is also a space in the reef, an oasis. Um, so I think one of the things we're trying to do with our organization is for families who still hold their lands, we help them to do that so that they can be Kipuka. They can still be the house you go to and get a towel and call your mom and use the shower and go when you're in trouble and that's looking out for the place, even if everything else is vacation rentals and no one else is there at night in a constant way. Um, but we also are helping communities to reclaim areas. Um, it's part of this global land back movement. When land in specific places is restored to the people who have relationship to that specific place. Um, so those are, you know, Kipuka, they're small areas. Um, some of them are these former Kuleana lands. But how do we get those back into not the ownership necessarily, that's not what's important, but the care of people of the place. So even that's, you know, if somebody who's very wealthy has come and bought two entire watersheds in Ahupua'a, do they have a relationship with an organization of families from the area that are coming to care for burials, to hold fishing camps, to educate their young people? And how do we open the door for those relationships? Um, because a lot of it is, like you said, um, it's foreign. These ideas, Michael, are maybe foreign to people coming here and buying. They don't, they have a realtor who's not from here. They have agents. They have many layers of handlers. They're not actually meeting people from the place or learning the stories of the place. And they don't know that it comes with such responsibility and that Hawaii is not a place you just own land. Um, mm. And so part of it is education, part of it is outreach, part of it's building bridges. But um, all of the proceeds from this particular book, Kayaulu Gathering Tides, um, go to that organization, Kipuka Kuleana. And we're currently helping about um, 10 different Hawaiian ohana with land issues and holding their land, as well as working with um, community organizations and groups that are holding land and caring for land, whether or not they own it. Okay. So, and does this work involve, so you mentioned education, is there like legal support that also happens? Because I imagine there's also just issues with local folks engaging with this complex legal framework. Yes, we have wonderful lawyers, one of whom volunteers um, to help families write land trusts, um, to do tax documents, um, to, to do estate planning, you know, things that, that are often made available to, to wealthier populations, but that can be useful tools. Also that help families have conversations about these issues. Some of these properties that have been owned, you know, since title was awarded in the 1850s, they have 450 owners scattered all across the U.S. And how do you reach out to them and make decisions together? So, yeah, we support in all of those ways. Okay. And you mentioned this term, uh, Mehana, the, the ahupua'a, which we haven't, we, it's been referred to, but I'd like to just give it its due. My understanding is that it's this, this concept of, of a stretch of land that goes from the mountain to the sea all the way. 
and it is it's, it's a kind of a social ecological unit but it also it's a kind of a unit of governance as well do i have that right and i guess my question actually that i wanted to ask is how how is how is that persisting or not is that still something that kind of is a part of the human landscape Great question. Um, yes, so it's a social and ecological boundary. It could change. We get really stuck to the boundaries. It could change. The ecological aspects were really sophisticated. Generally, they're mountain to sea. They follow the water. Um, but they also do things like zigzag so that there's reef attached to one that otherwise wouldn't have reef. Or they um, pair up two watersheds together and then open and close um, fishery seasons for certain species. So you could always fish in one when you can't in the other. They were they were quite sophisticated um, in their boundaries and more complex than we often know. And research continues to grow on this. One great thing in Hawaii is we have so much great research on the past systems because we have all these Hawaiian language newspapers that our people wrote to in the early 1800s to record things. And now we have enough Hawaiian language scholars to, to translate them. So we learn something new every day about the past here um, and how it can guide our future and how it's useful. So anyway, um, that system is very much still vital um, because also of the governance aspects. We talked about the importance of people to place. Ahupua'a basically defines who that is. <laughs> What's the place right. and who are its people, right? Um, it's very much, people are still very place specific here. They don't say I'm from Kauai or I'm from this side of Kauai. It's very specific about where they're from, where home is. We joke, my husband's a fireman and he was stationed on the West side and everyone in his station said, oh, you live in Hanalei. I've never been there for 10 years. <laughs> Our island takes two hours to drive around. Okay. Um, so in the social sense, it's very true. Um, in the ecological sense, it turns out to be vital as we face climate change and we face flooding and this whole idea of organizing communities around water flow is essential. Because if you don't know your neighbor and you aren't communicating and they, you know, have a whole bunch of refuse in their yard, they've cut trees and left them all in their yard, they're coming through your house. Um, so this whole thing of water as connective tissue for a community is vital. It's more and more recognized in the sciences and in policy today in Hawaii as a meaningful unit. Okay, great. Thank you. The next thing I'd like to ask you about is the, the, the Haina community, which you wrote about in your dissertation and its efforts to formalize its governance um, within the context of these state agencies and within the context of the imposition of Hawaii as being considered to be a, uh, you know, one of the U.S. states. And so my understanding is that starting around 1994, there was this movement to, to formalize these community-based subsistence fishing areas. Mm -hmm. um, and that lagged for a while. And this community decided, okay, we're going to pushed this issue and by around 2006 was able to have this, this status be more formalized. And your, your discussion of this again was terrific. And it was, there were parts of it that were really new and eye-opening to me. And there were parts that were also eye-opening, but were also familiar to me as like a governance scholar. Because like, one of the big concerns here is, you know, what is the challenge of formalization? Well, is formalization going to be able to recognize the spirit of the traditions that are trying to engage with this formal process? And so I'd love to talk to you about this, and I'd love to start by asking you, what was the motivation of this community to engage with these different state agencies to have its traditions formalized? What was the incentive to, to actually get off the ground and do that? Because I could imagine, and I think you write about this, there's, there, were, there were 
some people wanting to do this and some people saying, well, okay, like how is, is this actually going to benefit us? The motivation was really simple. It was wanting to have fish for their children to catch. This is a community that feels strongly and has experienced that being able to fish for your food is a source of independence. It's a source of safety. It's a source of security. They've, you know, our island's been through multiple hurricanes um, when the stores closed and people, people live that way. They go out and catch their dinner daily. Um, and you don't need to freeze it in your icebox because it's there in the ocean and it's really kind of looked down upon to catch so much fish you have to put it in the freezer. That means you took too much. People say freezers changed changed the abundance of the fishery. So that was the other motivation was seeing declines, seeing less and less fish and saying, my grandchildren are not going to be able to live the way I do. They're not going to have get have this food that has constituted our bones and that's concerning. Um, if you back up a little bit, that's how fisheries were governed in Hawaii. The people of the community um, made decisions about what should be fished when, what needed to be rested, what size, you know, what areas were closed because there's it's a spawning season or it's a spawning place. What behaviors could happen where in a fishery? Um, this particular community, they had a rule that one reef, which is the highest reef, only elders could pick seaweed there. Everyone else left it alone um, because it's the safest place. And this is also a community of independent elders that want to feed themselves as long as they can and not rely on others' charity, even in the context of a whole community that will feed them. Um, so it is a bringing back of local governance and local rules. And, um, you know, when Hawaii, there was a massive debate about whether to annex Hawaii after the queen was overthrown that raged from um, 1893 um, all the way until the early 1900s. And I was fortunate enough to um, find some of those papers and records of Congress when I was an undergraduate at Harvard University in Widener Library. And there were these raging debates about whether or not to annex Hawaii. Um, and people, Quakers and others, worried about the justice issues of what was happening and just said it was wrong. And then there were also, you know, concerns about our large Asian population and pictures of Hawaiians like monkeys in the trees and really racist arguments. So it was all there. But one of the first things when we were annexed at the territorial government did was condemn all the fisheries and make them all open to the public um, versus you fish here if you're from here um, and they each have their own rules. And then slow imposition of sort of statewide management or Hawaii-wide management. We didn't become a state till 1950. Um, and so that was a, a, a taking away of the local decision-making and governance um, and really adaptive rules, rules that changed all the time in response to conditions. Um, now you have, you know, say a certain fish, it's closed at the same time across the state. But some of our wonderful marine biology research now is finding that those same species, they actually spawn at different times across the state. They spawn at different times year to year, especially with climate change and changing conditions. So it's so dynamic. Our ecosystems are so dynamic. So this was a system that allowed for local level response to that dynamism. Um, and the community said, we're going to do this again. We're going to do this again. We're going to make our own rules. We're going to think about what species need to be protected, how much should be taken, what makes sense in these times. We're going to look at our ancestral practices and think of which of them should be put back into law. And we're going to make state law for our fishery 
and for the for coastal use of this place um, based on what we feel what we know is best for this place and and on what we've been taught by our elders but also a lot of research on what's happening in these times um, one young fisherman said yeah we always say take what you need but what if in these times what we need is too much what if the ecosystem mm. can no longer stand that so i got to sit for years um gosh, almost 10 years in really in-depth conversations and community struggles around things like that. Um, if we ban these gears, what if new gears come and emerge that we don't even know about yet? Maybe we should say what gears are allowed and everything else is banned. Like, how are we going to, you know, and, and what practices are vital to still be able to feed our community? But even which practices are we willing to rest? Because they couldn't make laws that were different for them and for everyone else, any tourist, anyone, anyone is going to have the same law, right? It's a public coastline, which is a great thing about Hawaii. But that meant they had to make a lot of sacrifices, and they did. They said, we love to dive for shells, but now we have these commercial shellers that before a shell even reaches the beach, they're out there making shell jewelry with it and on scuba tanks and taking it by the bucket load. So we're going to stop diving for shells with our kids. We'll just take them on the beach. Um and that's the kind of thing of, you know, how, what are you willing to sacrifice for your place? Yeah, I mean, the the one common denominator that, that occurred to me in reading this chapter and in just hearing you now is kind of homogeneity and the imposition of homogeneity onto a system kind of within the community. So you're talking about the elders being able to, to go in certain areas, to go to the certain reefs and get seaweed there. And the, the state perspective is that we're not going to differentiate between different folks within the community and how they might engage differently with the environment. And so my understanding is that, that a law just for elders or it would be unconstitutional yeah. <laughs> blocking of access for everyone else. It was so, yeah, it was such a different way of thinking. Yeah. And the same thing, right, as you were just saying, happened between this community and other communities where the state was saying, no, we're not going to say that you have certain rights and other people don't have those rights. Everyone's going to be able to do the same thing here. And it was one of the parts that um, was more impactful to me was that the way the community expressed their feeling of responsibility to the environment there was say, okay, well, if we don't want other folks to be, to be engaged, like, to be extracting or engaging with the environment here, we're going to ourselves give up those rights to make sure that this doesn't happen here, as you were kind of just saying. Yeah. And actually, this community is just the first to be approved. There's 20 communities, fishing communities across Hawaii in a huge array of ecosystems from lava that drops right into the sea to the whole island of Niiho that are saying we would like to do the same thing. Um, and so the second community to be approved, um, talk about sacrifice, they went for one simple rule, um, and they kind of called it tri-weight, and it's just to ban all fishing um, in their their area for 10 years because they just wow. wanted to, they felt it needed a rest, and they know it will replenish, and they're willing to do that. Um, we've since had the Molokai community has a beautiful management plan, very, very um, sophisticated rules based on spawning cycles, which they've been charting, how they change with moon cycles, but also how they're changing with climate. 
And then now we have a community um, before the State Department of Land and Natural Resources for approval. They're a traditional fishing community that um, feeds fishing spots in the ocean. They they using plant bait. They they basically make porridge for their fish and they feed them for an entire season um, and then harvest um, in a way where certain families are responsible for harvesting and feeding others. And they're keeping that practice going and they've proposed um, really interesting protected area regulations that are different for different spots on their really large coastline, depending on the the ecosystems and the species that they um, nourish. So, you know, every rules package is different depending on the community and their place and um, their their ancestral practices of caring for it and what they know makes is needed in these times. So it's it's really fascinating to watch. And the unfortunate thing is they have to go community by community. And there's also a whole stretch of Maui that's coming in now. Um, and rather than sort of having a mechanism to just say, um, we're going to restore this power to the community level and see what you come up with. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the state is still there. Are there so? I mean, it sounds also um, like the efforts of the Haina community were inspirational, maybe to other communities to pursue their own similar efforts, and vice versa. It's that reciprocity okay. you talked about in the beginning of us and the Aina, but also us in other places. Um, Moloka'i was one of the first, and Miloli'i, the the traditional bait community I was talking about feeding the spots. They also were one of the great teachers and you know, in legislative process, who gets to actually go first and gets approval first has so much to do with with so many things, right? Political power and, mm-hmm. you know, having the young people ready to step up and lead. And so we've really all done it together all along across Hawaii and inspired each other and pushed each other. And, and when there's a hearing for any one community, all the communities come. And that's one of the very beautiful things. They all speak for one another because we are dealing with the same state government and the same decision-making bodies for everyone. So that's one of the sources of strength is that mm. there's a network um, standing together in one, one large net and, and right. moving together. So I mean, one question about the state as we're kind of using this term, because I'm aware that in some ways we can talk about the state, but also we're kind of, when I say the word state, ultimately I'm using it in a very simplified way because ultimately it's lots of different people yeah. who have their own practices, their own personalities. And so were there also were there some state actors who were helping the communities as well within within this like larger uh, framework? Absolutely. Absolutely. And year after year, there are more and more. And I'm really blessed because I sit in the professorship at the University of Hawaii in the Natural Resource Management Department. So we're educating a lot of the young people that are going into these state agencies. And now we mm. have young people coming from these communities who've grown up in these movements and and actually now are, you know, and have seen the changes in fish abundance in the short time the rules have gone into a place and seen what it does for a fishery when you protect it in this way. And now they're training to be in government. And so again, yeah, there's there's no divide. The the state is us, we are the state, but but increasingly so. In the early years of these efforts and in Haena going through, there were less people in the state. Um, that just that just were aware of the issues and, you know, and not not really any positions in fisheries management except for fisheries biologists, whereas now there's community planners and, you know, people and people who are more um, trained in working with community and understanding different approaches and um, and doing that kind of bridging work. So it's it's exciting to see. 
Yeah, that that was another section that that I that I noticed when I was reading it that you, your comment that one of the main state agencies when all of this was unfolding was staffed primarily by biologists and there's nothing wrong with being a biologist, but if you're going to if you're going to try to engage with community, you know, you you want people who have the right sensitivities and the right training to do that well versus poor. And so to me it was, you know, another example of you know, ignoring the potential social and political implications of governance. And this is governance is about people as much as it is about the environment. It's not it's not a biophysical, apolitical challenge. It's very much about people and what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yeah. And a lot of these communities and Anna was very clear. It's about how you train your young people. It's about Mm. how you bring them up to live in these worlds, to do this work. This is, there's a great quote, you know, show me anyone in the, you know, anybody in the community who's working on any one of these issues is the busiest person you could know. They're involved in so much. And Uncle Walter Riddy from Molokai just said in a session last week, it's like whack-a-mole being a community member. <laughs> like something else just comes up, the cruise ships, the climate change, you know, da, da, da. Yeah, it doesn't end. Species listings, we're just, we're just engaged in so much every minute, right? And, you know, that the head of Uber just brought land next door. Bam, bam. You know, it's just, oh, it's just yeah. coming at us, right? And so how do you get your young people ready for that? And I think that's one of the sources of tremendous um, optimism and and awe for me is you don't have to choose anymore in Hawaii between being a marine biologist and being a fisherwoman. Like they're, they're the young people, they're doing both and they're Hawaiian language speakers and they're single mothers and they're, you know, they're doing it all. And with such um, dedication and excellence and part of it is just is, is Kuleana knowing that they have, they carry these responsibilities and having Mm. watched their, parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles do this work and and loving their home loving it and just we mm. call we say aloha aina what is aloha aina it's just this intense love for for our home that is it's sensual it's intellectual it's it's just who we are if i'm remembering this rightly a part of you you mentioned that this kind of whack-a-mole and and if, do I remember rightly that in this part of the book, there's this idea of kiai, of, of guardianship, and there was really a requirement to to extend what that meant, because in order to be a guardian, these folks needed to learn new skills and and operate in new arenas. And so what it meant to be a guardian really kind of grew into the challenge. Do I remember that rightly? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of people who, you know, I mean, they would have loved to keep just fishing, but all of a sudden, you know, they have to have email accounts and Facebook accounts and be flying to lobby the legislature. And and actually, two of these amazing communities got um, Equator Prize Awards from the United Nations. So they were at the United Nations in New York City. And um, just there's a lot of skills that are required. Right. And also, you know, going door to door in your community, making sure everyone's on the same page. Um, so many levels of of skill that are required to care for your place. You know, Mauna Kea was interesting, too, because Kia'i ship extended to, you know, being the people who show up and clean the porta potties, feeding for people, providing medicines for people negotiating um also you know working with all of our native students all over the world who are at institutions with strong um funding and 
um, centering of astronomy, right? And going into those places and having that dialogue about why this particular development and telescope isn't the right thing for our place at this time. So that's one of the things that we learn from many of these issues and very strongly from Haena's. We need all the skills and in our own community and in allies that can work in international law, that can manage nonprofits, that can do the business balancing, that can think about the self-sufficiency of your organization over time and what that looks like, and that can teach and educate. Uh, it takes all of it. Mm-hmm. And it can't all reside in one person. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. So to start to conclude our conversation here, I'd love to ask you about the future. I mean, when you talk about these processes and the formalization of essentially community rights and traditions, it sounds like that would give one hope in spite of all the challenges that we're, you're talking about in terms of dispossession and marketization of, of the land and the resources there. Um, what are your hopes for the future when you think about what could happen um, what kind of keeps you going and makes you think, okay, we can we can still make progress in spite of what's happened and in spite of the ongoing challenges? One of my hope is that these kipuka grow, that these, we talked about isolated patches of forest in lava, but that they're reseeding things, right? There's a single community like Haena, there's another down the road, that these will come to connect, that lands will be returned, that people who own land in Hawaii will say, huh, after my lifetime, Maybe my responsibility is to give it back and that we'll have trained the kahu, the young caretakers to to come in and to reside there and to make it abundant so that all these small kipuka will connect, um, that there'll be more and more restoration of decision-making power of communities in their place. Um, that said, with every step, we run against limits, right? And that those limits get pushed further and further and the progress gets pushed further and further. At the same time, we're having to question what are the limits of what we can do under the United States government? Um, And so when we collectively hit those limits and cannot do more or cannot do the things that are really essential to protect our place, for example, limiting the number of tourists that come in or limiting foreign land ownership, that we will be ready then, that we will have through these systems and through this regaining of power, built the infrastructure and the the things in place we need um, to be ready, to be ready to simply um, no longer be a state within the United States. Um, I'm excited for that. And just that the stories will continue, (laughs) that the stories will be told, that new stories will be made. Um, and that they will continue to have their mana and their resonance and their impact. And that children in Hawaii of any race will know who they are and what their responsibility is to place and how they can exercise it and be able to work to work to work in a, you know, in a really loving way together to do that, um, united by common love for place. And I have to ask, mm-hmm. is there another book? in the future you know there is but it's so in its infancy it's scary to talk about but i i think (laughs) community efforts like haena there's many and they're not all fisheries some are fish ponds some are farms some are mountain ridges um and there's communities 
popping up all over. And we have an amazing map of the number there were in the 90s versus the number. And between 2000 and 2010, they just go crazy. And between 2010 and 2020, there's more and more. And, you know, if you think about those kipuka in the landscape, the, just the dots are, are are populating so quickly. And every year I feel like a student goes out and starts an organization at their home and so I think there are stories to be told of that movement and um, ways in which those communities can tell their own story that I think would be a powerful book. And I, I'd love to write some children's books. Um, <laughs> and that's cross-generational at this point. This book ends with the voices of grandchildren of the elders that are throughout the book and that the poem was about. And they're saying some of the same things in their very own ways. And you know, now those children are running programs for their children, um, mm. like the programs they were raised in. And so I think that's pretty exciting um, and just what that's going to look like um, and what it'll look like when I'm a grandma. <laughs> I would look forward to being a grandmother and being able to tell stories um, in that role. Yeah, the, 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 the importance of storytelling is something I've been thinking about throughout this and, and just kind of how we, we, we make sense of our lives and what happens and what's going to happen. Um, well, Mehana, I really appreciate your time. Are there any final comments you want to make? Were there threads that we started that we, we need to return to before wrapping up? Sure. I just, I guess I could read you a poem to close. I would love that. This one's short and it's never been read before. So I'm a little nervous. I wrote it on Sunday. Um, and I really honor Jane Hirschfield because she came and, and did a writing workshop with us. And I think more and more I hope to write poetry, which I haven't done actually for many years. So this one is just called Praise. Praise to morning stretches, those who don't stretch the truth, true green and its many variations. Praise to mountains that block the wind, to mothers that always have snacks. Praise to dish doers who then clean the drain of the sink. Praise to gardeners who pull out by the roots, the landscapers who use rakes, not leaf blowers. Praise to the teenagers who live with grandparents, eyes, hands, errand runners, carriers of stories. Praise to the grandparents raising grandchildren full time and to those who sit on the floor and play blocks when their grandkids visit. Praise to the rain you can see but not feel, the clouds collecting drops. Praise to the cardinal flapping into stiff gusts, the mountain slope gentling towards us. Praise to public school teachers who lend children books, break from five-sentence paragraphs, and feed kids breakfast. Praise to Levita, fishermen, sharing gallon-sized Ziplocs with fish already gutted and scaled for dinner. Praise to the broom that gets into the corners, children doing chores without ask. Praise to the palm fronds that stay on the trees, to grass that isn't pokey. Praise to the family that holds on to their land, homes whose doors are always open. Praise to necks which hold up our heads, heels that root while we walk. Praise to the bread bakers who give things time to rise. I just, that's a bit of a random poem, but it's fresh off the presses and it's about gratitude. And there's just so much to be grateful for, including this time with you and all of our teachers. Thank you so much, Michael. That was beautiful, Mahana. Thank you very much. I'll be thinking about this for a while. I'm looking forward to editing it because then I get to listen to all of this again. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.